Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. Sometime in the last year, I was having a conversation with Corey. I I think we were talking about um, ecstasy and altered states of consciousness and kind of just asking what's the point of it. Um, In in that context, he uh, um, suggested it was about perhaps trying to find God. So at the time, I proposed this podcast that I'm making today but it requires a little bit of reading or preparation it's it i w- maybe not requires but it's suggested to do a little bit of reading first um i would recommend if you have the time and inclination uh it would be helpful to familiarize yourself with a couple very short books in the hebrew bible um which you can find online i like to use the Chabad website, which is spelled uh, C-H-A-B-A-D. They have all the Jewish scriptures online, and I think their translations are very good. Um, And of of course, it's free, and you can easily find it on Google. Um, Just search for Chabad. I don't know, Jonah. Jonah is one of the books that I recommend. And the book of Jonah, like I'm looking in my Jewish study Bible, which um, is fantastic, and... um, it, it it uses the um, translation of the Jewish Publication Society, which you can find um, in many different versions. So that's the one that I recommend if you're buying uh, a, a book in the future. But um, in, my, in my Jewish study Bible, the book of Jonah is four pages. Let's see. Yes, it's four pages. And then, so I'm recommending the book of Jonah. And then the main topic is going to be the book of Esther. Uh, and that one I think is like 10 pages long. If you have time for it, it would be helpful to familiarize yourself or refresh your memory about the book of Job. That one's a little longer. I think it might be about 20 pages. So four pages, 10 pages, it's not a lot of reading. And if you have the time for it, it will help. Um, and I'll also mention that the context where I had these, um, you know, just moments of of what I felt were what I what I experienced as moments of understanding, um, happened in the context of my last year as a student at Harvard Divinity School, um, where I was really uh, where I had really immersed myself in um, all of the darkness and pain and suffering that uh, humans experience. Um, Part of it was about, you know, first-person accounts of slavery in the United States. Part of it was um, the Holocaust. You know, Holocaust studies was a big part of that past, of that final year. And uh, and then also um, in trauma studies, you know, I was really immersed in all of these um, heavy experiences people uh, bear the pain that people um, survive uh, from being the targets of violence, sexual assault, catastrophic natural disasters, um, those first-person experiences of being, you know, surviving the bombing of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, um, torture, 
and especially violent physical abuse of children that was i think one of the hardest one of the hardest to read about you know, as as a, a just a, a short interject, interjection i also want to say though that um i did have a moment go, you know when a lot of this was really 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 getting to me um i had a moment where i kind of realized like okay this isn't hard for me this is hard this was hard for the people who experienced it you know this isn't about me i'm just sitting here reading about this stuff they actually lived through it and i also want to put it out there that um my intention here is definitely not to try and persuade anybody about any kind of um to hold any kind of position about the existence of God, I do not care. I really want to emphasize, I don't care if you believe or not. It's your business, you know, whatever um, belief system is right for you, I don't care. Um, that being said, um, one of the frequent um, arguments, I suppose, one of the frequent reasons you'll hear people state why they don't believe in God is because of... Um, They'll say, this world, there's so much suffering. How could it be possible for a God who is good to see all of this and not do anything? And so this, that's kind of the uh, core question, really, that we're looking at today. As I think you'll see when we you know, get more into these uh, three books specifically. And some of you may recall that I did start touching on quite a lot of this uh, in a recent episode that I titled Meditations on Hell. So I do, in my own mind, um, all these kinds of experiences are associated with hell so that we're not just talking about, um, you know, young men in Vietnam or World War One experiencing overwhelming violence and um, panic or children being abused or you know the holocaust uh, uh all of it is part of this but really if we're going to like uh you know i don't know i would call it maybe extracting a, a, a more generalized symbol this is really about hell and the experience of hell it's not about the question of why does hell exist it's about where is god where's god in those moments specifically and those are really extreme moments where you feel the absence of God most sharply because you're most in need of most in need of help that doesn't seem to come, you know. But more generally this is about you and me and everybody in our everyday lives. And Corey's question of like, where is God? You know, how do I find this God if there is such a uh, a being out there where do I look and where is he in this whole story or she so as I think I said before the book of Esther is really the target of uh, um, the discussion today it's kind of the um, focus of what we're going for but as background um, 
we'll also look at the book of Jonah and the book of Job and I you know I say it as background but they're wonderful books in their own right and the book of Jonah I think is one of my favorite books in the whole uh, Hebrew Bible I found Jonah just immensely relatable and it's a short book many of my insights in this book I owe to a wonderful wonderful teacher named Judy Klitzner I've never actually met her despite being in barely close proximity in Israel and um, a few times in Boston but uh, um, in close proximity socially I mean but um, she wrote a book called uh, Subversive Sequels in the Bible her last name is spelled K-L-I-T-S-N-E-R um, so I just want to um, put out a plug for her because she's amazing 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 and uh, um, really showed me how to read uh, Jonah in a new way and so, as you may know, um, the book of Jonah is this book about, um, it opens with God calling the prophet Jonah, um, and right immediately at the beginning, in, in those first two verses, God calls him right in the first two lines saying, go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim judgment upon it, for their wickedness has come before me. And Jonah just turns and starts running right at the beginning he um he hears this voice he hears this call and he says nope and he runs for it um and uh uh judy klitzner points out how there's this series of descents that happen as he uh um runs away from god um sort of physically moving through the landscape down 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 until he reaches the uh uh, ocean where he you know boards this boat and goes out I, I i i'm not sure how well you all know these stories but um you know there's he's on this boat and this horrible storm comes with that threatens everybody's lives and um oh jonah has actually even descended even further even once he gets onto the boat down to the ocean he descends further into the 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 belly of the boat into the uh uh inner you know bottommost recesses of the boat where um he falls he goes to sleep now judy klitzner asked this wonderful question uh is the boat that jonah is in the same boat that noah used is the boat in 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 jonah and the boat in the story of noah are they the same boat noah as you you, you know is uh um has built his boat to escape the destruction of the world which God brought upon the world as uh, uh, judgment and really this catastrophic destruction where he just kills everybody and Klistner points out how Noah's is uh, he's obedient he does what God tells him to do but he doesn't really make a lot of effort to warn anybody before um, the catastrophe happens. He obeys God. He he gathers his family together. They get in the boat, but he never goes out and and says anything to anyone to try and uh, change the the uh, disaster that's coming to them. Maybe you know suggest doing things differently or asking for mercy rather than. Um, this catastrophic destruction that's about to come so um it doesn't seem at first to bother noah that um this is going on but 
then, you know, Klitzner points out how once he gets off the boat, the very first thing he does is um, build a vineyard and get, uh, make some wine and get like, fall on your face, shit face drunk. And she suggests, and I like at first I wasn't really open to this idea, but the more I thought about it and listened, I think I, I understood where she was coming from about um, it being an expression of maybe something like what we would call today post-traumatic stress over the trauma of having experienced the complete destruction of the world and everything he knew, everyone he had ever known, you know, the whole surface of the earth and every human and animal upon it, you know, just wiped out like that. Um, she's suggesting that his uh, drinking is um, a post, you know, a, a response to that trauma. Noah is, in one sense, kind of like the way he just experienced and saw, witnessed the drowning of the whole world. Now he's in his own way drowning himself in uh, alcohol, drowning his grief. Um, and the first time I, I heard that, I wasn't entirely persuaded. It seemed like a bit of a reach to me. But the more I think about it, the more I I think that, that uh, there is some merit to that, uh, to that idea that he's kind of descending down into his own um, grief and uh, drowning it in, in alcohol. So back to Jonah, you know, Jonah has um, fled from the word of God, from his calling um, to a boat at the ocean that he's now inside and there's a storm at sea that's threatening to uh, destroy everyone. And the sailors are trying to figure out, what's the cause of the storm? Did we offend some god or something that we don't know about? You know, they're in this position where they're like, gosh, if only we had some prophet to tell us, you know? Uh, you know, why this is happening, we don't, exp we don't know um, what's going on. And Klitzner also points out how there are, I, I, I believe the... Uh, the rabbis in the Talmud say there were 70 sailors on the ship, and the 70 sailors represent the 70 nations of the world. So in a sense, the whole world is present with them on this boat now, sort of metaphorically. And so the guys on the boat, they kind of cast lots, and they discover that through this sort of like process of divination that Jonah is the cause of the uh, misfortune. And so they confront him about it. He tells them the truth, and he says, just pitch my ass overboard. You guys will be okay. You know, I'm the one he's mad at. Just kick my ass off into the sea, and uh, everyone will be saved. So so they do. This is one, <laughs> this is one of my, uh, another one of my favorite moments in the, uh, in the book. And I mean, for all the wrong reasons. If you... Uh, do a Google image search, you know, you can find some pictures, some uh, pictures of, I mean, like, you know, not, uh, their drawings of paintings of uh, the sailors throwing Jonah overboard, and I love it so much. I, um, I, I can't explain why, but it's, you know, I just find something so funny about it. They're just like, bye. Um, <laughs> but seriously, um, so uh, 
so so you know continuing with with the book that the uh, um the one of the points is that the sailors actually when Jonah tells them you know I'm uh, a prophet of God and this is why this disaster is happening they believe him they don't reject the message they actually say oh snap this is a terrible situation and we need to do something to fix it immediately you know they they have faith and they are saved and so this whale comes uh, it doesn't actually say whale in the Hebrew it just says fish this big fish comes and eats Jonah it swallows Jonah it doesn't say it eats him it swallows Jonah and um, Jonah stays inside the belly of the fish for three days and three nights there's a lot going on with that but um, the sort of psalm or poem that Jonah recites while he's in the um, belly of the whale I think makes it pretty explicit that this series of descents going down 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 and ending down in the belly of the whale that he, the it's meant to symbolize descent into uh, descent into death I don't want to say hell necessarily in Hebrew it uses the word Sheol which uh, is translated into English as hell it's not exactly precise but like for present purposes let's just go with that and say he has gone descended all the way down into the pits of hell to down into down into darkness down into death to the lowermost possible nadir that it's possible for uh, a human being uh, the lowest point it's possible for a human to reach and so while he's down there at this um, I suppose rock bottom he prays to God and says please uh, have mercy and save me the uh, Jewish study Bible commentary also points out that um, the prayer that Jonah says is actually stitched together from a bunch of different psalms it sounds like one of the psalms but anyways he has um, prayed for deliverance and God saved him God commands the fish and it spits Jonah out onto dry land now we're halfway through this book and that's two pages of four pages so probably t has, it's taking me longer to explain it than just to read it so I'm not saying I'm just saying so now the word of God comes to Jonah again it's the same commandment saying go to Nineveh and deliver the message so Jonah does and what happens the people of Nineveh believed the king of Nineveh is distraught you know the whole city goes into mourning they, they've heard this message God is going to destroy us and their reaction is they believe they accept the message and they say you know like the soldiers in uh, like the sailors in the uh, boat they say what can we do you know let's maybe if we ask for mercy and um, I, I actually do want to read that uh, those exactly what they say because um, this is what the king is saying because the, the phrasing is important um, this is as he's proclaiming you know that the whole city should be in mourning and you know kind of uh, uh, turn to God and ask for mercy and, and um, deliverance he says uh, let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty who knows 
but that God may turn and relent. He may turn back from his wrath so that we don't we do not perish. So then it, it, the, the, the uh, text is saying, you know, God saw what they did, how they were turning back from their evil ways, and he renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon them and didn't carry it out. And this turning back, you know, there's, there's so much that can be said about it, but it's, it's, it's more than just like a, a casual phrase. You know, it, it's in, in English, we have the idea of repentance. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's teshuva. You know, you make teshuva, you turn back to God. Uh, in the same way, you know, at the beginning of this book, Jonah is going down, 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 down as he travels away from God until he turns back you know, in the belly of the, the uh, whale, in the belly of the fish. And I think it's also worth knowing, worth noticing what they're turning back from. You know, the reason that destruction is coming upon them is uh, because they've been violent people. That's, I think, what their evil ways, what that means, is they're renouncing violence and turning back to God. And so the text tells us that this displeased Jonah greatly, and he was grieved. So, again, like I'm following Klitzner, she's pointing out that um, this is the first time, this is the end of the book, and we're just now learning why Jonah rejected God's call, you know, why he ran away from God in the first place. He ran away because he says, this is what I said was going to happen. He says, I knew that if I delivered the message to them, they would believe and repent. And I knew that you are a merciful God and you would, uh, you know, have mercy on them and wouldn't destroy them. So Jonah wanted God to destroy them. That's why he was running. And we're just learning this at the end, that that was the reason why he was running away. I think there's a sense where his running away is uh, he's running towards, you know, anger. He's running towards violence, in a sense. He wants destruction. He wants punishment. He wants it to come, you know, to that city. He, he wants them to be punished for their sins. And that's why he ran. And so then, you know, as Jonah is saying these things to God, like, I knew you were going to do this. At the conclusion of that, he says, I love this so much, he says, Please, Lord, take my life, for I would rather die than live. And God says, Are you really that deeply grieved? I love that so much. I just think, uh, it, it's probably not meant to be funny, but I find it just so funny, where he's like, Please, just, I would rather die, okay? <laughs> and God says, Really? <laughs> um, I, find, I just find Jonah really relatable, you know? Um, and then there's this, the final, um, paragraph or two of this, uh, very, very short story, this very short book, it has a really strange ending. Um, but before, before, before we look at it, I just want to point out, you know, also Klitzner, one of her major uh, main arguments here is that really emphasizing how Jonah is saying, I know, I know, I know, I know. He's saying, I knew this was going to happen. He says, I know you are like this. I knew you were going to do this. The emphasis is really on 
this knowledge that he claims to have. He says, I know, I know, I know, I know. And that's why he is, it's part of why he's so angry. So then the, um, the book ends with this strange story about Jonah, you know, goes up to a, a hill over the, um, city and to watch what's going to happen to it. And God plants a tree to provide shade for him, uh, and save him from discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. But then the next day, God killed the plant and God, and, and Jonah was, uh, unhappy again and then Jonah says and then God says to Jonah are you so deeply grieved about the plant um, you know are you so are, are you really so upset about this tree and, and and Jonah says yes so deeply that I want to die I've never really heard anybody really kind of underscoring the importance of this line but I do think that that's something to um, you know make one of those little mental bookmarks on Jonah saying, I want to die. I'm so unhappy. I want to die. So then, you know, God, it ends very abruptly with, uh, you know, God says to Jonah, like, you care so much about this tree that you didn't work for. You didn't make it grow. It appeared overnight and it died overnight. But you don't care about this city where there are so many people so many people who didn't know right from wrong. Why didn't they know right from wrong? No prophet had ever come to them before. So this great city is full of all these people who don't know right from left and lots of animals too. And that's it. Book ends just abruptly like that. Okay. I'm going to try and pick up the pace a little so we can get through this. Um, all right. The book of Job. I've talked about the book of Job before. Um, I think it was on that podcast about monsters, which might have been the same one as the Meditations on Hell. But um, just to review very quickly, the, there's uh, uh, two big chunks at the beginning of the end, at the beginning and at the end of the book that look like they were kind of added to the text at a later point from the main body. I mean, there's so much scholarship that's been done. The Book of Job, uh, a lot of... Um, you know, academics, they're not even really sure that it should can be considered a book that's written in Hebrew because I think something like, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but a vast number, 60, 70% maybe, of the words uh, never occur anywhere in the Hebrew Bible outside of this book. So it might even be considered like a dialect. Dial okay, this isn't the important stuff. The important stuff is that uh, it's the first book where there's a kind of a proper character uh, with the name of, of n not exactly Satan, but Hasatan, which uh, in, in Hebrew just means like the ab the adversary. And so he is this uh, angelic being um, in the divine court. And scholars, again, say that like this um, character was modeled after the uh, agents provocateurs in the secret police uh, in the court of the uh, ancient king of Persia, um, so th that's I think that I've I've talked about that as one of the really important points of connection uh, for me. I, that's where that's where we talked about this was the like the first uh, episode about intelligence and its connection with uh, the esoteric worlds um, or esotericism. So Hasatan, the adversary, is this um, sort of um, uh, member of the secret police in God's kingdom. 
and his job is to go out there and try and get people to uh, commit sins so that he can run back to God and say, look, you know, your servant is, is uh, doing this thing wrong. He's bad. Pun I mean, maybe punish him even, you know. Um, and there's this kind of wager between God and, and, and Hasatan over Job, who's like this super pious uh, yid, where they go through these uh, series of um, stages where the, the, the adversary is saying, I bet you I could get him to curse you, you know, if you let me do this bad thing to him, if you let me kill all his livestock, if you let me kill his kids, you know, like he's just bringing these horrible, horrible disaster after disaster after disaster onto Job, who's never, who hasn't done anything wrong. Um, and, and, and the adversary's argument is like, the only reason Job is pious, the only reason he likes you and says good things about you is because you've given him everything he wants. Uh, you know, start... Um, touching his uh, property, start like uh, um, bringing calamities on him and he's going to turn around and curse you to your face. And so that's how they enter into this wager. <sighs> and then the overwhelming majority of the book consists of after Job breaks. You know, he breaks. He's human. He can't take it at some point. And um, he says, I wish I was never born. You know, I wish God had never even created me. I'm, I hate this life so much. Um, and so he basically, you know, is doing what the adversary said he was going to do. He's cursing God pretty um, <sighs> openly. But there's also this uh, um, great moment early in the uh, process before he gets to that breaking point where his wife is just like, get it over with already just like curse god and die already if you know uh, just just do it um so so he eventually does come to that point and he lays out a extremely um detailed case against god remember back to the beginning of this podcast where one of the points you know we're trying to discuss here is like why is there so much suffering in the world job is really concerned about this too how can there be a good god and all this suffering god the only explanation he doesn't you know he doesn't go to the place of saying god doesn't even exist he just says screw this guy i know that i'm innocent and i don't deserve this so the only other explanation is that god's a shithead and he lays out a pretty extensive case for for uh, uh, this argument, um, which is important because that court scenario that I mentioned, the kind of bookcase, the bookends, uh, the book of the book of Job, the beginning and the end, like it's there, it is kind of a courtroom situation. So at this point, um, it starts off with that courtroom where God and the adversary are debating. Um, you know, kind of Job is on trial in a sense. Now Job kind of turns the tables in the body of the book, and now it's God that's on trial, and the whole universe is at the courtroom. And he lays out some, you know, he lays out some biblical realness. You know, he's uh, um, he feels he's got a really, really strong case against 
you know, the God of this world. And he, he, you know, he articulates it. And so three of Job's friends shows up, show up. I'm not sure I remember this part exactly right, but if I do remember right, maybe the text says that they're there to comfort him, but in reality, that's not at all what they do. What happens is they start, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, that, that Hasatan is the um, adversary. He's an adversary in the sense of like a prosecuting attorney in court. He's the accuser. He's making accusations. And so there's this kind of like uh, um, cascading effect of accusations that go that passes through the book where, you know, the adversary is accusing Job and then Job turns and becomes God's accuser and then Job's so-called friends come and they start defending God but in the process they become Job's accusers also. Um, and I would say virtually every commentator, you know, certainly the non-Jewish commentators that I've seen, the academic commentators, nobody really seems to feel that this book has a very satisfying conclusion. Because God does show up in the end, and he does defend himself, but the way he defends himself, he doesn't actually answer any of Job's accusations. They're just like, if you are reading it, like, you kind of maybe, you know, feel you get where Job is coming from, um, as in, like, this could be me, you know, saying these things that, like, yeah, I do kind of feel like, you know, it's like this, that God is, is this way, and, like, the world is shitty in this way, and and so as a reader, you kind of feel a little bit cheated that God doesn't have anything to say about it. He just kind of pulls this kind of, it seems like he kind of pulls a power trip, or he's just like, who are you to accuse me, you know? Where were you when I was, you know, building the sky? Where were you when I was, you know, separating the seas from the oceans and the light and the darkness and all of this, like, majestic cosmic stuff that I was doing? Like, where were you? You don't know anything. And, if, and it can feel really unsatisfying, but the argument that I'm developing here, um, there really is something more to this than might initially appear, okay? Um, before before God shows up, so there's the three friends who have been, you know, Job's accusers and God's defenders. Then a fourth person shows up. I'm just going to, just to keep this moving quickly, I'm looking, um, uh, I'm just going to read a couple of lines, uh, I'm sorry, from the Wikipedia that summarizes the book of Job. Um, just so we can keep moving along quickly. Uh, after the three dialogues, there's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, this uh, um, a, a poem called The Hymn to Wisdom that uh, appears in the book where that just talks about how hard it is to find that wisdom is, is uh, uh, something that's hidden. Uh, where is it to be found, it asks, and cl concludes that wisdom is hidden. Okay, remember we're talking about where is, um, where is God? Uh, I, I'm going to have to say another couple words about uh, the, hidden, the hiding of the face of God in a moment, just uh, one second uh, before we get to that. But uh, um, again, jo Job is uh, um, points out how things were so great before, now his life is really shitty. He says he's innocent, he didn't deserve this, and demands, you know, 
really uh, powerfully, saying, God, answer me. I want you to tell me what the actual fuck. I, like, and he, I mean, he's pretty strong about it, saying, like, I'm bringing my court case against you. you know, this is a legal proceeding. Show up to court. You are hereby summoned to this cosmic court to answer for yourself because you are on trial and I accuse you of, you know, victimizing innocent people. And so that's when this fourth character, Elihu, shows up and says, wisdom comes from God. God reveals it through dreams and visions to people who then declare their knowledge to the world. Okay? And that's when God appears and has this, this uh, majestic epiphany where uh, he, he scares the shit out of Job in this display of power. And that's kind of the sense that you get is that like Job has this kind of like oh shit moment where he realizes that he's in a lot of danger because God is a lot more powerful than him. And he shouldn't have uh, challenged an opponent who could destroy him so easily. Like that's kind of the sense that you walk away from the book with is that like he realizes he's super vulnerable and God has the power to uh, destroy him, you know, and hurt him in ways he hasn't even begun to imagine yet. That's one of the reasons I think the book feels so unsatisfying for so many readers is that God actually isn't um, exonerated of the charges. They kind of linger in the air after the book is over. Even, like, no matter how pious you want to be about it and say, yeah, cool, all those things Job said about God are wrong, God was right all along, and Job just didn't know it because he was too um, small-minded to get it. But, like, there's still this kind of lingering sense of, like, eh, God didn't actually answer him, you know? We're still kind of wondering, what do you have to say about those things? Because it really kind of does look like this, that there's a lot of suffering that people don't deserve. Innocent people, babies, little children, you know? Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, like I can make a, a, a pretty um, detailed list of horrifying things that happen to people that they don't deserve. Horrifying. There's one extremely bizarre thing that God says. While he's in the middle of just like telling everybody off, you know, what do you know? Who are you to talk to me? You know, having that moment, um, he makes one really bizarre comment to the three friends of Job. I I think I brought this up before. I don't know if you can hear, but I'm it's starting to rain here in Texas right now. Okay, I can't find the exact quote, but um, God God turns to the three friends and he says, "You know, you didn't tell the truth about me like my friend Job did, my servant Job." You know, he's like, you guys, um, you know, you were defending me, but he was the one who was telling the truth. And it's this really bizarre comment because, like, that doesn't kind of really seem like what's going on, you know? God doesn't seem to be here vindicating Job. All he seemed to do is kind of make this really dramatic theatrical point about how much more powerful he is than Job 
and um, how Job knows nothing and is nobody. So this is uh, this is actually kind of the the important theme that I've been uh, hinting at. I've been I've been starting to develop, you know, with the book of Jonah also. You remember in Jonah, Jonah was the character in the book who keeps saying, I know, I know, I know. God, I know you're like this. I know you're going to do that. I know um, something's going to happen that I don't like. And I want to stop that from happening because, you know, because I'm pissed and I want you to uh, uh, punish evildoers. Um, similarly, here in the book of Job, some thunder. Similarly, here in the book of Job, there's this uh, same theme of knowledge that's being developed about um, Job was pretty confident in the case he made against God. You know, this is what I know. And in the end, God says, you know, what he was saying was true. He wasn't saying things that weren't true. But if you can get past, you know, kind of the emotional uh, aspect of the conflict what this book really seems to be what what you know God is portrayed as uh arguing the point that he's being portrayed as making in this book is that like this universe is so much bigger than you understand, and uh my knowledge you know your your knowledge really what do you know in that vast cosmic scheme of things you think you know but you don't know all right this has all just been prelude. Um, we're now getting to the book that I really wanted to talk about. This is kind of the, uh, the this was all kind of background to the book of Esther, which is really the central focus of uh, today's sermon, I suppose. Sorry. All right, I just mentioned a moment ago that um, that I was going to talk about the hiding of the face of God. In Hebrew, this is called um, Hester Panim, and it's connected to Esther um, through this through a sort of wordplay that the Hebrew Bible is very fond of. Her name Esther and Hester, y you know, they have that um, that similar sound that um, you know is the kind of thing that the uh, um, the ancient rabbis really love to uh, make a lot out of. So, so Hester Panim, um, it's a concept that's that's very uh, frequently uh, connected with the Book of Esther, but in more modern times, it's also um, been associated with the Holocaust. The um, I think it's especially like in Hasidic communities, but uh, um, that the that the Holocaust is um, sometimes referred to as the Hester Panim. It could be. A more general thing, I don't know, but it, but it is the case that the the Holocaust has been um, often referred to by this name, Hester Panim, the hiding of the face of God. So that kind of gives a sense of what it means for God's face to be hidden. Um, hell itself is, I mean, there again, like to reiterate, in Judaism there isn't really the same kind of idea of uh, uh, the existence of hell. Um, in in that sort of Christianized sense of the uh, fiery pit of eternal damnation, but uh, but Judaism, you know, tends to see those kind of ideas of heaven and hell as as more like states that exist here on earth in this life. Is there an afterlife? Is there an afterlife? Maybe, but like the focus is really this world. 
and so and so Hester Penham is 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 hell in the sense of like hell on earth, which once again to reiterate can be really 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 bad. With the Holocaust being perhaps the um, contemporary exemplar of of the experience of hell on earth, and beyond the physical suffering, there was uh, a real spiritual crisis. You know, in the concentration camps, I think uh, there were a lot of people who lost their faith, you know, who said, I can't believe in God anymore. Because that experience of suffering was so extreme and because um, the extermination of the Jewish people was so close to total and God didn't intervene to save them. I've mentioned before that in one of the encyclopedias of the Holocaust uh, produced by the, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, there's a drawing of um, the entrance to Dachau concentration camp. I think it's Dachau. There's an entrance to a concentration camp that has uh, a line from Dante written over the gates of the entrance, uh, abandon all hope ye who enter here. That was how Dante referred to the entrance to hell and that is how you know, that is what these entrances to the concentration camps were like for the people who entered into them. All right. So bringing us back to this moment, bringing us back to whoever we're sitting, running on the treadmill or whatever you happen to be doing at the moment um, and wherever you are. I don't know how many of my uh, listeners are in the United States or elsewhere, but um, within the U.S., the... Uh, the Festival of Purim, which is associated with the Book of Esther, is um, widely compared to the uh, Jewish version of Halloween. I get what they mean, but I think that um, that doesn't really like they're trying to make it accessible for non-Jews, and you know, just to kind of hopefully transfer a little bit of that <clears throat> positive feeling you might have about Halloween to to a, a Jewish festival. But I don't know that it's really all that effective in the same way of saying like, oh yeah, Hanukkah is the Jewish Christmas and Purim is the Jewish Halloween. It's it, you know, it okay. It, it, it's a it's a nice effort, but like, but anyways, there there is in a sense some some truth to that though about um, Purim and Halloween, but but it's kind of misleading, kind of gives the wrong impression that um, I think of it even a little bit more like. Uh, the ancient festival of the uh, Saturnalia in ancient Rome, um, which I actually do think I've been, I was looking into this recently, and I do think historically, um, you know, scholars do think that that Purim actually has roots in the in in uh, uh, the Saturnalia and Bacchanalia uh, in ancient Greece and Rome and those kinds of these these festivals where basically there was one day out of the year where uh, the laws were suspended and everything. Um, the the normal social hierarchies were inverted, so it was especially, um, uh, I guess, dramatic within the um, uh, court or household of the king, where all of the slaves uh, suddenly, you know, just for one day out of the year, they were in the position of being the king, and the king, you know, the the, the positions were reversed for one day, and so. I think that gives a, a little bit better sense of what Purim is about. Is about that world upside down, where everything 
is inverted. Everything's the opposite of the way it should be. And there's another very important um, element to know, aspect of Purim that's important to know, is that Purim is the holiday for everybody to get absolutely shit-faced drunk. It's considered a mitzvah that uh, the rabbis say you should get so drunk. Okay, I had to look it up just to get the phrasing right. The The Talmud says that one should get so drunk on Purim that you can't tell the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. You know, Haman um, is a bad guy in the, in the book of Esther. Mordecai is a good guy. So the idea is you're supposed to get so drunk you can't tell right from left. You're supposed to get so drunk you can't tell good from evil. Remember what I mentioned earlier about um, in the book of Jonah, that very last line where God is saying to Jonah, these people don't know, you know, right from left. That's how drunk you're supposed to get, that you've reached to that state where the entire order, the entire order of the world, the entire order of your social world, of, of society, is completely um, obliterated. Maybe even a little bit like the, that role of the ocean and water and, and alcohol in, in the book of, uh, in the story about Noah in, in, in Genesis and the, in the, uh, the sea in the book of Jonah. Like, there's this idea of like the drunkenness of being like in this sort of watery chaos realm where um, everything is, is indistinct. There is no um, law and there's no order. Now, another thing about Purim is that it is um, associated with Yom Kippur. And again, there's a kind of wordplay. The word ki in, in Hebrew means uh, like. So ki pur in Yom Kippur is like the day that is like Purim. That's Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is, tr is translated, you know, generally as the day of atonement. It's the day where the... the where where uh where the Jews or perhaps even the universe repents and and turns back to God and so and so this um this idea of teshuva of turning back is kind of turning back to God obviously um the specifically kind of turning the face back to God um I've been talking about how Jonah is going down, 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 running away from God. It actually starts much earlier. Um, the hiding of the face of God starts in the very uh, um, early chapters of Genesis after um, after the eating of the tree of knowledge. The first, th first thing the humans do, Adam hides himself from God. And then after Cain kills Abel, uh, when Cain is punished, God says, you know, I'm going to hide my face from you. So that's kind of the, the, the beginnings of hiding and, and the hiding of God's face in uh, the Torah. So Jonah is running away from the face of God, um, down, down, down into darkness and death before he reaches this nadir where he turns around, makes repentance, you know, and turns his own face, you know, back to God. Now, the book of Esther as is frequently noted, is one of the most unusual books in the Hebrew Bible. I know it's got a lot of competition, but um, it's extremely unusual in the sense that nobody asks God for help or prays to God. 
you you might think that it's just like a completely secular story and so the rabbis see this as a challenge to the reader okay remember that this podcast the initial question we're talking about is finding god where is god in this story and that's what the rabbis say is that the absence of God, the apparent absence of God in the book of Esther is a challenge to the reader to, to look, you know, actively look and see where is God? Which is something, okay, we'll come back to that. So another thing on the festival of Purim, uh, an important um, part of it, I think maybe the most important part of Purim is that you're supposed to be present for the reading of the book of Esther. And the book of Esther has within it certainly episodes that look like a Purim festival but more generally the whole story is about this sort of upside down world where uh, you know the leadership of the world is incompetent like the people who are in positions of authority and power are completely unfit and um, and everyone's in a lot of danger because of the incompetence and unfitness uh, to be uh, of the the uh, visible human leadership to be in uh, control of the world. Okay, so this book opens with King Ahasuerus, who's the Persian king. He holds this extravagant banquet that lasts for like half of the year. And at the end of the banquet, the king gets really, really drunk. And he calls for his, um, he calls for the queen and asks her to um, take off her clothes and show um, his friends how beautiful she is when she's naked. And she says, fuck no. Um, and so his counselors, you know, Ahasuerus' counselors are saying, like, this is inappropriate for uh, a woman to be disobeying the king. It makes you look... Um, unmanly it makes you look emasculated and you shouldn't um put up with this because uh, it makes you look bad as a king it makes you look impotent it makes you look like your wife your woman tells you what to do it's it's not it's not okay you uh, you have to uh sh you know show everyone that this isn't okay and so he kicks her to the curb goodbye vashti and issues this decree every man is king in his own house. So now he needs a new wife. And and after this, I don't know, something like a, let's call it a Miss Persia pageant, he chooses Esther, who's a beautiful young woman. Uh, she was an orphan, and she's raised by her uncle Mordecai. And she's Jewish, but the king doesn't know it. So... A short time later, a couple of his, uh, the people, you know, the people working with him try to assassinate uh, the king, Ahasuerus, and so uh, they're hanged, and the king's kind of right-hand man, um, whom he appoints, is Haman, the, um, the villain in the story, and so it's a lot of fun. Um, if you ever have the chance to attend a Purim party when they're reading the um, when they're reading the scroll, you know, whenever any, uh, whenever the uh, uh, reader mentions the name of Haman, everybody in the audience goes boo. So 
you know, it's it's uh, it's childish and it's a lot of fun and everybody's drinking. So, um, I don't know, it's a fun little uh, um, aspect of, of, of the experience of Purim. And so everyone's supposed to bow down to Haman as the um, representative of the uh, king, but um, Mordecai won't because he's a Jew and he's not allowed to uh, bow down to anyone but God. And so, and so Haman decides we're going to kill all the Jews now. And he persuades the king, you know, to let him do this. And they set a date. Here's the day we're going to kill all the Jews. Bear in mind this is a really ancient book, you know. You can and I think should look into, you know, learn a bit about the history of how many times in human history um, people have tried to exterminate entire communities of Jews. It's not just the Holocaust. It's something that's happened again and again and again and again. And so, you know, here's this book from 2,000 years ago talking about the, that situation, you know, already happening happening in the 4th century BC. And it's also worth noting, I guess, that at this point, you know, this, this king in the story, he's not really much of a king. He's just, he's being manipulated by all these people around him. He doesn't really have, like, um the mind of a ruler he's he's uh um kind of capricious and and yeah easy to manipulate easy to ma manipulate and um and the Jews are in danger because you know he's not doing his job to protect the people and it's also important to note that that that, that um Ahasuerus is not a Jewish king the Jews are in a situation where they're kind of uh in a diaspora situation where they're you know, living out among the nations under foreign kings. And, and this one in particular is um, criminally incompetent. Okay, if any of you have actually stayed with me this long, thank you. And um, I think we're pulling into the home stretch now. And I've said before, I think that um, a lot of these stories in um, Jewish scripture are meant to be compared to your present situation. Sometimes they don't fit. That's great. That's a fantastic time to study. But there are situations where they become, you know, kind of activated. And they can help you see things that are going on. Um, and help you think about. Help you know how to think about. What's going on when a similar situation might come up in your life? Or when you find yourself perhaps under the authority of... Um, a president or some other kind of leader or uh, uh, boss or authority figure um, whose incompetence and unfitness for the job puts people in danger. Now, one of the most important moments in the book, I feel like I've read these lines before, but um, there's this pivotal moment where Mordecai, who is uh, Queen Esther's Jewish uh, uncle, you know, Haman is now in charge of uh, uh, this uh, genocidal project to um, exterminate all the Jews in the kingdom, and um, it looks like it's going to happen. And so Mordecai sends a message to Esther, and he tells her, um, Do not imagine that you of all the Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis... If you keep silent in this crisis, 
relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another another quarter, while you and your father's house, house will perish. And who knows? Perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. Okay, um, one of the things that's so important in this, I mean, despite, I think, the obvious uh, significance, um, is this who knows? We've been hearing stories about all of these um, characters in in the scriptures who are pretty angry. Um, they you might even say they they have this kind of like uh, desire for violence. Their faces are turned turned towards violence. They're turned towards uh, punishment and uh, uh, destruction. And um, they have they're they're at least portrayed as having these very uh, uh, strongly held beliefs about what they know. I know this, I know this, I know this. Um, versus other characters who who uh, who say this is specific phrase, who knows? You know, this is something that the, um, the sol the I don't know why I keep calling them soldiers, the uh, um, sailors in uh, the boat with Jonah, they say, who knows? You know, maybe God will have mercy on us if we turn back and ask for forgiveness. And so here again, Mordecai is saying, who knows, you know, emphasizing his lack of knowledge, you know, again, unlike Job, for example, um, or a lot of those characters in the book of Job. Who knows, he says. Maybe you're in a position of authority just for this. And then what follows is the scene where um, Esther takes, uh, you know, her... Uh, uncle, he's kind of a father figure to her, um, takes his words to heart, and um, she does something that, uh, that is, is, is dangerous to her personally. Um, she goes in to see the king without being summoned, which is something she could be uh, executed for, I think. Uh, she's, putting, she's taking a big risk. Um, and the exact wording, again, of this... Uh, oh, moment is is important again i'm just reading the translation but it's a good translation um so esther put on royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's palace facing the king's palace while the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room facing the entrance of the palace so what i just want to draw your attention to there is the uh emphasis on their faces um she stands in the inner court of the king's palace facing the king's palace the king is sitting on his throne facing the entrance so the king and queen are now face to face they're face to face specifically because this vulnerable female character is putting her own life in danger to uh, confront the king to ask for mercy on the Jewish people whom Haman I think you might see him um, like maybe some similarities here between the court um, in heaven with uh, Haman in that kind of adversary role of the uh, um, demonic adversary trying to persuade the ruler, you know, punish them, kill them. She's coming into that courtroom scene and saying, have mercy on them. And in doing so, she's putting herself in mortal danger. And it's also what brings the, the, the king and the queen face to face. And it works. The king sees that Esther is in uh, a lot of distress. And he says, you know, what's wrong, my queen? Um, 
Ask me for anything, even up to half my kingdom, I'll give you any request. And so she requests that um, he invite Haman to a feast that she's prepared later that day. And so then again, they're at the feast, and um, the king asks uh, Esther again, you know, tell me what is your wish, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. All right, so again, it's not a long book. This is like 10 pages. Please, uh, I encourage you to read it, but you probably won't. The, uh, the, the bottom line of what happens is that um, Haman sets up this stake to uh, to have Mordecai killed. He's still pissed off that Mordecai won't bow down to him. And what ends up happening is that their places get switched, that uh, Haman had this intention to kill Mordecai, but he, in turn, ends up being the one who gets um, not crucified, but like... Um, hoist on his own petard. Have you heard that expression? Like the uh, uh, the trap he had laid for uh, the Jews ended up being the trap that he fell into. The, uh, uh, the punishment that he had intended for Mordecai ended up being the punishment that he uh, himself experienced. Alright, so I feel like all of the puzzle pieces are here. But I really, what I really want to underscore, what I want, the, the, the issue or question that I want to come back to now as we're coming to the end is, um, where is God in the book of Esther? There's this crisis happening, you know, where this uh, vicious, um, vicious and murderous bureaucrat in the king's court wants uh, and is in the process of trying to um, perpetrate a genocide against the Jewish people in their kingdom. Where's God while this is happening? You know? Why don't we hear God's name anywhere? Why doesn't anybody pray? Why does God appear completely absent from the story? Why is God's face hidden from everyone in this book why 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 can't we you know why can't anyone see him why can't we see him why does God appear to be absent if he exists and there are hints in the story that like the way the story itself the plot itself unfolds I don't exactly I, I wouldn't exactly call it suspicious but there are just like these bizarre coincidences that keep happening it's like the characters, you know, are inside this book and they don't realize that they're in a book and that um, it's like someone's almost like writing the story, like someone who had maybe a kind of plot diagram written out beforehand, you know. But the first point is that you have to look, that the absence is itself an invitation to look, an invitation to try and find the answer to look into the events of the plot and see if it's possible to discern God's presence. And God's presence does seem to manifest within this book as a series of, you know, extraordinarily unlikely coincidences. 
And not only that, but the protagonist of the story, who's Esther, she seems kind of challenged to to act and to do what's right herself in within that story. Not to be a passive character, but to actively participate in that plot and to become the vehicle through which God's presence is manifested. And not to just passively, you know, sit back and wait for some kind of deus ex machina, you know, salvation sweeping down from outside to save everyone, but to participate. It's her business to be saying, am I doing everything in my power to stand up for, um, you know, people who don't have the same privileges that I do, to be one of the advisors, you know, around the king who's giving him good advice and helping to steer history, you know, in a, a, a direction that's not tragic. All right, I guess this is about all I have to say today about Jonah and Job and the book of Esther. There's one uh, loose thread left to tie up here, which is uh, the the question of the Holocaust, which we brought in. Why did it happen? You know, was it punishment for, from God? You know, generally, you know, it's a very uh, natural human instinct to um, interpret experience of pain, um, experiences of pain or suffering or, um, you know, or even targeted attacks as punishment from God. And uh, I personally would never presume to be in any position to explain to anybody, you know, the meaning of the Holocaust or why this happened to so many people. Um, and, uh, but this is something that I've read quite a bit, a lot about, and the answer that I have ended up embracing um, is one that uh, I initially found it very unsatisfying, but but over time I've come to I've come to really embrace it, um, and it's a position that was uh, I believe endorsed by Rabbi Telushkin, whose um, opinion I respect immensely, and also the Lubavitcher Rebbe. If you ever hear of anybody talk about the Rebbe, you know, this was uh, uh, one of the Hasidic, you know, mystical Jewish um, lineages from Eastern Europe, which now, um, you know, after after the Holocaust came to uh, be centered in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York. But uh, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, um, what he had to say about, you know, why why did the Holocaust happen? Was it punishment? Um, what was the what was the explanation? What was the reason? His answer was, um, you know, his answer was to reject all explanations and all reasons, saying like, what reason could there possibly be? You know, this isn't something that's within our capacity to understand. And so his answer, you know, in the face of the immensity of human suffering, looking at the face of hell on earth, it, it's just something that lies outside reason, order, and meaning. And you can't force it into, you know, that um, 
circle of what is uh, comprehensible, of what it's possible to um, make sense out of. We can't make sense of it. And so, you know, I'm looking at, uh, um, there, there's a lot written about this on the Chabad website. Um, plenty more to look into if you're interested. You know, again, you know, you can just search for uh, Chabad Holocaust. You'll get plenty of material, but um, uh, there's one comment I think there's one comment he made that I think is very powerful. He's uh, uh, saying that uh, even though the Nazis were defeated, we still have to ensure that their plans don't come to fruition. I think that's very uh, profound and insightful. That uh, you can take away Hitler, but racism still remains. Um, that sense that one ethnic group is superior to others or that, you know, there are communities of people who are uh, inherently superior and inferior. Um, or I would even put it in terms of scapegoating, you know, that uh, just targeting one group of um, an ethnic or religious or even sexual minority and saying these people are the causes of suffering on earth. Hitler, you know, may be long gone, but those same Im human impulses remain and are as dangerous today as they were, you know, in 1930. And a final point that I'll share from the Rebbe, which I just think is so beautiful, he and his wife were in France when the Nazis invaded in 1940, and um, they fled, and this is how they ended up in uh, New York, but while he was on this journey from France to New York, he uh, continued writing in his journal, and um, the day before they got on the boat to sail to America, he wrote in his journal about this uh, passage in, in the Talmud that says, the son of David will not come except in a generation that is entirely worthy or entirely unworthy. So basically it's saying that like the redemption, the Mashiach, the messianic era will not come until either humanity is 100% entirely bad or 100% entirely good. And so in his journal he wrote that this uh, refers to two alternate scenarios in which, uh, you know, we uh, the redemption comes because uh, we deserve it because we've reached such a high station that um, you know society has has arrived at that at that uh, uh, point of being uh, worthy of redemption and the beginning of the messianic era, and then the second uh, the second scenario is that um, the entire all of humanity has deteriorated deteriorated to such a point that God steps in and says, okay, you know. I'm taking over from here. But the Rebbe says that until humanity reaches to that point of being so entirely, completely corrupt that, um, that you know, God essentially intervenes and stops history, until we reach that point of total depravity, um, we, we have the responsibility to keep trying to make the world better, to fix the world, to repair it, um, because if the Messianic era, if the Mashiach hasn't come to end history because we're 
completely rotten, it means we still have the chance to repair the world. We still have the the opportunity to fix the world and to turn things around and to um and to reach that point of redemption coming to the world because we've become entirely worthy. And until we reach that point, it's our responsibility to keep trying, to keep trying to bring light into the world and healing and mercy. Eight, zero, eight, four, one, nine, eight, and...